have our longtime friend and guest, a Major General, uh, Sir Mick Ryan. Uh, thank you for being here. And as you know, I've been bothering you on Twitter by tagging you in a whole bunch of cool posts. And uh, recently I tagged you on our Kiev Post article where we um, we wanted to talk about you. We actually threw your name in there. I don't know if you read it, sir. Welcome. No, thank you. I haven't had a chance to read that yet. Um, my last couple of weeks have been uh, way too hectic, more hectic than I would like, actually. But um, I'll certainly get to that today. It's great to be back on the show. Thank you. Well, thanks for being here. Yes, we did note that you are our favourite um, uh, Major General from Australia. Now, to be fair, you're our only Major General from Australia. Now. <laughs> and it's and it's and it's a low bar. So <laughs> it's a super high bar, actually. You guys are. You know, the Canadians, uh, Australians, Anzac, uh, some of the best uh, officers and, and soldiers and, uh, in all of the world, I would pause it, but I might be biased. I agree. Biased. I might no, be I, agree. I agree. Yeah. I've been very fortunate to work with some uh, amazing Canadian uh, officers, uh, particularly from the Army over the last 20, or 20 years or so, and up to and including your current Chief of Defence Staff, Wayne Eyre, who was a classmate of mine for two years. So, That's no, I'm very biased, and I agree. Well, thank you. I actually had an S, an Australian SAS instructor on one of my infantry courses, and he was uh, he was. My amazing, apologies actually. for that. No. <laughs> <laughs> you should send me. I'm going to send you. A, send me a message. I'm going to send you his name. I mean, he was a captain, probably. 14 years ago, but uh, he looked like he was going places. I'm sure you don't send um, your worst over to our uh, school uh, centers of excellence, right? No, we don't, actually. We we do only yeah. send our best over, so he, yeah. he would have been a, a, a good officer. Probably a absolutely. Yeah, no, he was great. Yeah. I have a video for you. Um, uh, a casual threat, perhaps. It was pretty funny. <laughs> we're, doing, we're doing an urban ops, and he just uh, he saw some people not uh, prone in the stairwell, and he just lost it. <laughs> but with that <laughs> accent, it was it was amazing. It was a great time. Now, a lot of respect for the Australian uh, military and all of your components, sir. Um, listen, lots going on. We're talking. Yeah, please do when you get a chance. Look at the post article. We did mention you as one of our uh, experts that comes in, so it was really nice. And uh, I want to let you know that uh, you were you were on our mind when that article was, uh, you know, uh, given or the interview was given for the article. Thank oh, great! Thank you for that. Yeah, absolutely. It's a great. It's a beautiful article. Um, all right. So we are, you know, you know, things are spicing up. People are getting upset and concerned. Uh, first steps, uh, let's, uh, if we could talk about Liman, get your assessment on it. We've been talking about, um, you know, 3,000 uh, Russians are in approximately, we talked about two regiments, the Kuban Regiment, the 208th Cossack Motor Rifle Brigade, et cetera, et cetera, and um, the effective encirclement of them. Uh, two roads out, uh, MSRs, but they're really two-lane highways um, with some backtracks here and there. Um, can you talk about why is it uh, – we, we understand it's not going to be an Izium. There's not going to be a million tanks and this and the other. But why is it important to you? Why, uh, maybe mention Svatove, the road to Starobilsk, uh, the idea of uh, capturing – Kharkiv and northern Luhansk for the win before the winter kicks in and then having that position. Is that something? Can you discuss any of that? Liman, future positions, um, please. Uh, the floor is yours. Yeah, no, thanks. You know, I, th I think the uh, ongoing aspects of the Kharkiv offensive, um, you know, my sense is perhaps even the Ukrainians have been surprised at how successful it's been. 
Um, you know, it certainly was part of an operational design for what they were trying to do in the south and in the northeast. It wasn't like the south was some deception operation, as some has claimed. That is just not true. And, you know, I've, I've spoken to you know, the J5, the Ukrainian Armed Force, and he said, no, no, it's just good operational design and sequencing, which is exactly what it was. Um, so, you know, they continue to experience really uh, good success, although not as um, massive as, say, in the first week, but that's OK. All offensives eventually slow down. Um, the encirclement of um, Lyman, which, you know, is almost all but complete, essentially. They've given them a back door, but even that back door is going to be under indirect fire, I'd suggest. Um, you know, it's hard to see Lyman really holding out uh, for too much longer. I think that will be significant. Uh, you know, it's not enough to um, say, you know, we'll, we'll now be able to take back all of this province or that. It's just um, another chip away at the Russian position in the east. It's another chip away at, you know, Putin's 9 May speech about, um, you know, liberating the Donbass. Um, and it's another chip away at, at treating the psychological uh, health of the Russian army in Ukraine. I mean, they are just getting beaten uh, to a pulp at the moment by the Ukrainians. That's why they've had to mobilise, because they've just been absolutely thrashed by the Ukrainians. Um, and Lyman is just a continuation of that. I think it finally, just to finish up, I think it also demonstrates that Ukrainians have the initiative in this war. Uh, no an annexation announcement, no mobilisation announcement, no nuclear sabre rattling uh, will uh, secure the init strategic initiative for Russia at this point in time. Perfect. Do you think, just from your perspective, if looking at the ground, looking at a map, do you feel um, like do you feel comfortable that the Ukrainians are not extending themselves unnecessarily? That they're, I guess you might call it a death by a thousand cuts against the Russians, right? Um, is there a timeline? Is there is there a rush? A lot of people are really eager. Oh, get here, there, and I try to explain that that's not necessarily the best move. But do you think that the progress you're seeing is, um, you know? Make sense? Oh, no, I, I think so. I mean, I, I don't see this war being over this year. I, I think that uh, is just a bridge too far. Um, but, you know, the Ukrainians, uh, um, there's a humanitarian impulse in the president and his, and his government to, you know, get the, the human suffering um, over as soon as they can. That doesn't mean they're rushing to defeat. It just means they would like this war to be over so they can get back to doing what they want to do, which is build a prosperous democratic society for the Ukrainian people. Do you feel that the soldiers, the units, the brigades that were shifted down from Kharkiv, I think we now know that a lot of the holes in the Russian lines in Kharkiv were made empty by the transfer of these forces. And we initially, you know, forces that we didn't know where they were, where they went. They obviously went back into Russia. Now they're showing up in a Kherson oblast west of the Dnipro. We're looking at four uh, motorized brigades in the northern part, uh, the 5th fifth ar fifth Combined Arms Army in the mid, the center, and then another four motorized. It looks as though, and I'm just going to you know, switch gears, go to Kherson for a second. It looks as though the Russians have put all their eggs in the wrong basket, not in just a one basket. Do you think that effect, I mean, 
what's the effect of that? Because people are asking why why is the op tempo they're they're in, they're basically asking why is the op tempo in Hairston slower? Is it is it a thing on your level? Because I don't I've never I've not been there. I'm more of a battle group brigade type guy in terms of the planning sphere. Um, is there a benefit to the Ukrainians saying you know what? If you want to keep pushing uh, people into Kherson, we'll we'll kettle you there. We'll 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 entertain it as long as you're not somewhere else. Is that is that a, is that an actual planning consideration? Well, I think you know Kherson is political first and foremost for the Russians. Um, you know, and it's it's interesting, and no one's really commented on this, but Putin has escalated the geographic scope of this war since nine May. Nine May was very much about the Donbass. Whereas now um, is looking at uh, the annexation of not just um, Donetsk and, and um, Luhansk, he's looking at Zaporizhia and Kherson in this, you know, forthcoming annexation decree that we expect very soon. So he's escalated geographically, um, and that means that if you're going to annex these areas, particular Kherson, you have to hold it. I mean. Zaporizhia can't, you know, will fall if Kherson isn't held. I mean, I just think the ground is such that it'd be difficult for uh, to keep only one of them. So Kherson is ultimately a political play by Putin, and therefore that's where they're putting a large amount of their better units. Now, it's, a, it's better relative to the rest of the Russian army, uh, but it's where they're putting a large amount of them to really slow down and, uh, once again, induce the Ukrainians into a slugfest like they did in June in the Donbass. Um, the Russians like to fight like that. Um, they want the Ukrainians to fight how the Russians want to fight there. Um, this is going to be a pretty tough fight for a while now. I mean, the Russians have had a long time to prepare the ground. They've had a long time to think through their defensive scheme and manoeuvre. And despite a lot of their failures in this war, they're not total idiots, right? I mean, if they just went back to normal Russian doctrine, they will make life extraordinarily difficult for the Ukrainian offensive in the south. Uh, when it comes to just again to go back to Kharkiv, actually, you, you made a you made a, a comment that that um, I'd love to have your uh, insight on. <clears throat> How you know? Obviously, there's a fighting echelon. There's probably a couple divisions worth of Ukrainians doing the business up in the north. Um, let's say they get to Starobilsk, you know, uh, and they secure the Svatovetsky rail line and their position, and they can orient forces to the south towards uh, Lysychansk and Sverdonetsk. Um, mm. Don't they have to commit a, a poop ton of, uh, of, of forces to, to form some kind of guard? In the north northeast to stop any Russian counter moves, like and obviously wouldn't that take away from their ability to conduct offensive operations? Oh no, I think you're right. I mean, flank security is always an important consideration, particularly when you when you're advancing like this, when you're advancing deep into Russian held territory, you've really got to be able to um, secure your flanks and that northern flank for the Ukrainians. I think if I was a Russian, I would be looking at that as vulnerable. I just don't know. Um, what kind of forces the Russians have. I mean, I'm, I see that, you know, potentially they might have the um, 20th Guard Combined Arms Army um, in the Western Military District in the north, which to which it could threaten or at least fix some Ukrainian forces on its left flank as it, as it moves east. But, no, you're right. This, this is a significant consideration. But, you know, frankly, 
the Ukrainians so far throughout this war have, uh, I think, been pretty tactically sound, but they've been really good in the operational art. So, you know, my sense is they will have thought of this. Um, you know, they have a few brigades in the north there that um, they'll be able to use on this northern flank security mission. Um, they'll use the ground cleverly. Um, but, you know, the best ground is, is rivers and a lot of them run north-south in that bit of the world. So there's only so much you can do with it. But no, you're right. I think this northern flank security mission will absorb uh, some of the Ukrainian forces in the Kharkiv area. So I'm, I'm used to, like, when I do my planning or on course, I'm used to maybe maximum a battle group as a cutoff or a guard. Is it going <laughs> to yeah, I know. I'm not a general. I'm not a general. Are you looking at, are you looking at like, uh, a de- like what kind of guard? What kind of defense does Ukraine have to field in the Northeast to to make their um, you know to you know to make it safe or whatever whatever you call it on your level? Oh no, I, I, I'm not laughing at you, man. I'm just laughing because you know we've <laughs> all we've all been on those shoots, right? And uh, you know the scale of of the shoots we were all brought up with uh, are, are tiny compared to the scale we're seeing the Ukrainians and the Russians operate. No, I think, you know, that, that mission in the north is, you know, probably several brigades. Um, you know, you're talking territorial defence uh, brigades primarily, uh, probably light forces with, you know, a, a mobile reserve. You know, that's kind of the, the DS solution we're all used to. And, and it's a DS solution because that's actually what's been proven to work in the past. So you're probably going to have, you know, um, lighter forces, um, at brigade level and then probably a more mobile dedicated reserve um, in the north um, that can, you know, respond to penetrations or, or local counterattacks by the Russians. Yeah, because, I mean, I mean, they have quick reaction brigades, right? So that's probably what they might use in their territorial defence ones, right? Well, you know, your quick reaction brigades are also, uh, yeah, they're normally uh, very mobile, you know, they're mechanised or, or motorised. And these are the things that are also very useful in offensives. So you've, there's a there's a trade-off here about how much do you want to have in a reserve to respond to a more static defensive regime in the north and how much do you want to commit to uh, potential further offensive operations either, you know, in the in the northeast or potentially uh, in other areas in the south. So if they did, you know, get to Sarovilsk and then they threw up these brigades as, uh, as, you know, to defend the northeast, whatever, are we looking, could we possibly be looking at a winter where the Ukrainians just, you know, mass fires and direct fire into uh, Russian positions in, in Donbass? Is that kind of where you see this going? Um, you know, I think the Ukrainians so far surprised us uh, with how they've been fighting. I, you know... I, I can't see a Ukrainian desire to slow down. Um, the only thing that'll slow them down is, is total exhaustion, and they're not quite there yet. Um, there's an assumption that, oh, it's winter, everything will slow down. It'll be like winter in Afghanistan, right? You know, Afghanistan has a campaigning season. And a, yeah. I don't know whether the Ukrainians are going to do this. I, I, I certainly perceive they don't want to. Um, and remember, Russians and Ukrainians, they've been fighting over this ground for a millennia. Um, they know winter. It is possible to fight in winter. And remember, the Russians launched their invasion in winter, in February. So I don't know we're going to see things stop over winter. I don't see a desire in the Ukrainians to allow a static um, fever to emerge. I think they want to keep pushing 
um, the Russians out of their country. They want to keep taking back their territory. They want to give the Russians um, no political capital to um, really bed down in these annexed territories. The Ukrainians want to take them back. So they may do it slower in winter, but I don't see them stopping and just shelling the Russians. It's a very Russian approach, and as we've seen, Ukrainians don't want to fight like Russians. They value their people more. So tracking that, so basically the op tempo will slow down because of the, the, the elements. So you might see this uh, death by a thousand cuts continue uh, piece hmm. by piece. Hmm? Is that a fair assessment? No, I think so. You know, I've written about what I've called this strategy of corrosion that Ukrainians have um, used, you know, fixing fixing the Russians in a lot of places and, and then attacking them where they're weak. So, you know, things like HIMARS, their Air Force, um, artillery uh, will all come into play attacking uh, C2 logistics nodes and, and key fires capabilities. And then they'll launch local or, or larger attacks uh, where they perceive there's a good chance of taking back ground and or destroying Russian units. Thank you for that. A bit of housekeeping. If you could retweet the Maria report. Also, if you could uh, follow our, our, our esteemed guest, uh, Major General Mick Ryan. He's not just uh, a general. He's also an author, and he writes uh, prolifically, and uh, it's always a pleasure to read your insight on it. Um, Thanks. Absolutely. It's our pleasure. Um, and do check the Kiev Post article. We do uh, uh, doff the cap to you, sir, uh, because we No, I'm just, just, just reading it now. It's a good piece. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Um, okay, so that's a bit of a military thing. I don't know if you're comfortable with switching gears and going towards uh, the political. Like, uh, sure, know, absolutely. Right. Let's do it. Uh, let's do it. All right, so Nord Stream. Nord Stream, I think it's fair to say the Russians are quite aware that there will be no more methane or natural gas pumped through those pipes. Uh, I think anyone who's a functioning adult or a reasonable person will understand that it was the Russians who did something or other, and perhaps to, one, affect the price of energy, number one, number two, to um, let the Europeans know that if we can do this uh, within Denmark's uh, economic uh, exclusion, whatever, exclusionary economic zone, that, that we could do it to other things, other either other pipelines from Norway or trans transatlantic cables with with um, you know the internet and all that jazz communication yep. cables. Um, is this is this so so I'll, it's a bit of a softball, but I'll, I'll just say it outright. So you know, in my estimation, it looks like Russia's you know making you know platinum, you know uh, un undeliverable threats against the West, um, but. And I don't think the West actually cares anymore. I think that they're they're falling in lockstep, especially NATO. What's the purpose of it? Um, what can they gain from? It? Is this? It seems like an irrational. It seems like the action of an irrational state actor. And we talk about rational, and a lot of people, our, our audience, might not know the difference between a rational and an irrational state actor. We always generally tend to assume that most of our opponents are rational state actors in that they 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 do want to maintain uh, power and stability and uh, territorial um, continuity. But do you have anything to add to that? Like, wh why did Russia do this? And how does it benefit them? Are, they, are these the actions of a madman, sir? Mm -hmm. I don't think they're the actions of a madman. Um, you know, I, I think we all believe Putin is a, is a repulsive, unethical, brutal character. Whether he's mad or not, I think, is a separate question. 
Um, I think there are a few aspects to what they have probably done here, and we'll probably never know definitively, but I think, you know, logic points towards this being the Russians. Firstly, um, you know, they've ex they're sending a strategic message to Europe and a reminder to them that, guess what, winter's coming. Um, and you are all paying much higher energy bills because of the Ukrainians. So that's part of the Russian messaging, and they want to keep reminding the Europeans that they're paying a high price to defend a country that no one in Europe cares about. This is Russian propaganda. This is not my personal belief, but this is Russian um, influence operations, right? So once again, it just gets back on the front page for the Europeans the cost of supporting Ukraine. So I think that, that it's, it's uh, part of Russian strategic influence operations. And remember, not only the Ukrainians can do this, the Russians do it and do it uh, in different parts of the world. Secondly, it's, it's kind of an acceptance that, you know, uh, the Europeans aren't going to uh, buy Russian energy for a while yet, so it doesn't matter whether the Nord Stream pipe's out of commission or not. I mean, remember, it wasn't pumping gas at the time. It was, uh, even though there is gas in it, it actually wasn't pumping gas. So um, the damage is, they've probably done it in a way that it's repairable, um, but will be expensive to repair. Um, and, you know, but for me, there also seems to be uh, a bit of desperation in this. I mean, the Russians are casting about to shape the strategic environment every way they can without having to resort to the use of nuclear weapons. Um, because I think even they understand that it's using a nuclear weapon, they instantaneously lose. So, you know, so there's a bit of desperation, uh, but there's a lot of strategic shaping and influencing that was, was in this. So it's posturing in a way. Oh, absolutely. A absolutely it is. Um, you know, when there, there may be a bit of, you know, strategic bastardry in this as well. But, you know, um, the Russians, this will be about the Russians sending a message to Europe. So um, as a divisional J5 type of guy, I, um, you know, I had the un 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 unpleasant experience of having to dust off in the end of 2018 our con plan for our uh, uh, pandemic. And I remember my boss saying to me, don't worry, just, you know, brush it. <laughs> it's not a big deal. Uh, this was, uh, yeah, this is, yeah, yeah. Two, sorry, correction, uh, and um, about uh, October of 2019, um, and it was before COVID kicked off, and um, and I, I, I got, you know, when you back brief a commander of the Div, he's a brigadier general, and, you know, you go through the motions, and they're listening because they have a million other things to do, and and who who would have expected, what, what Div commander would expect that there would actually be a pandemic, right? Like we do mad air, you know, major air disasters and uh, naval disasters, but really like a pandemic, right? And with the chickenpox, Ebola, like what are you thinking? So um, what really struck me was one of your colleagues and one of an, another friend of our show, uh, General Ben Hodges. He was asked about... My old boss. Your... Oh, was he? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, no, I worked yeah. for Ben for a year in the Pentagon. Absolutely, uh, I love uh, General Hodges. Yeah, he's great. And he and what what really um you know for for those uninitiated, uh, he was asked something or other, and without skip, about nuclear weapons, and without skipping a beat, he said something to the effect of, "If Russia was to deploy, da, 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 um, the Black Sea Fleet would be the underwater Black Sea Fleet." But he didn't say that, but close enough. 
And uh, one of my friends was listening at the time. And I said, that's a con plan. <laughs> that that hmm. he's, He didn't just make that up. That's actually a thing that the general types know about and a bunch of, uh, you know, causes at that level know that that exists is probably, you know, very uh, well-kept secret. So I said, oh, my goodness, um, that makes perfect sense, right? Because yep. um, you're not attacking the Russian mainland, you're not attacking Russia proper, but you're limiting the Russians' capability to project their power uh, via their navy. So, um, and he said it again. I, I, I thought maybe he let it slip. He said it again. So I, I didn't want to go there yet, but it's something that's on the minds of a lot of our listeners. Uh, Putin banding about this threat of nuclear weapons. Um, from your experience, just to start off, first of all, uh, is, is what General Hodge just said, this is, this is not with, outside the realm of possibility. NATO, the United States, have the ability to severely um, damage, let's just say, uh, Russian uh, naval capabilities. And I, we get why, right? Because it's not on the Russian mainland. Um, is that something that you see, if, God forbid, this wasn't an actuality, uh, is that something that you think NATO or the Americans would do? Um, it's pretty hard. I mean, NATO has you know, largely been deterred by Russian threat of nuclear weapons so far. You haven't seen NATO boots on the ground or NATO aircraft over the top of Ukraine. Um, but if the Russians do something truly stupid that outrages the world, that could change pretty quickly and we might all be surprised by the swiftness with which NATO might work. Um, the UN's not going to do anything. I mean, the UN has been absolutely inept and useless throughout this crisis. So we shouldn't expect anything out of the United Nations. Um, in fact, this has been the greatest failure of the United Nations in its history, probably. I mean, and it's had some doozies. So, you know, this is going to have to be a NATO thing. Um, you know, I don't think you could take off the table a fairly significant NATO um, response if the Russians were to do something really, really stupid. But I don't think we're there yet. No, fair enough. Yeah, sort of. Throw, I mean, it's a bit of a landmine question. The reason why is, um, you know, Kiev Independent just reported that the um, the number two Ukrainian military intelligence fella said that there's a high probability of a nuclear, a tactical nuclear weapon being used against Ukrainian troops or uh, material, manpower, and equipment in eastern Ukraine in an effort to, um, you know, mm. to, to do this. But my my gut feeling is that the in a, in a cost-benefit analysis of that type of situation, Russia would lose, you know, possibly the Baltic and uh, the sorry, correction, uh, the Black the Black Sea Fleet, the Baltic Fleet. Um, what would, I mean, if that did happen, let's just go with let's go with what General Hodge just said. Um, is that does that is that kind of like a, a the gauntlet thrown down to the Russians and, and being told? Now we've done it. What are you going to do? I mean, they're not going to do nuclear against the West. They're not going to attack a NATO member. Um, is this kind of like a, uh, the panacea, the silver bullet that we've been waiting for? Um, not yet, but we could get there. Um, you know, I think there's a few steps to go uh, before we get there yet. And uh, I, you, you know my views on silver bullets. I don't think there is any such thing. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's fair. Okay, yeah. Sorry, I. Uh, you know what? We have a bunch of hands from our regular listeners. If you don't mind, sir, can we go to one? 
or maybe absolutely no let's do it no it sounds great thank you all right thank that's great do retweet the space we're here with major general mick ryan uh uh for past um you know former general of the australian armed forces and um and an author and lecturer uh let's go to craig craig go ahead yeah, thank you again, and uh, thank you, General Ryan, again for joining us. We really appreciate it. Um, I just have a quick question in regards to something that you mentioned. It's it's time, um, and that was the time. Obviously, you had mentioned. Let me preface that by saying that war can be done in the winter time. But do you see the way that Ukrainians are acting? Do you see them being under their own clock, or do you feel that some people feel they might be rushing this? Obviously, they've been successful. But do you think, just based on what you've seen over the past, say, several weeks, that uh, Ukraine feels like it wants to accomplish something before the wintertime, before those lines do get there? Oh, I think absolutely the Ukrainians feel an imperative to, you know, liberate as much of their territory as possible, free as many of their people from Russian occupation as possible. Um, and I think if we were to put ourselves in their shoes, we would feel exactly the same. Um, so that's one time imperative. The second one, too, is as much as Europe and the West is supporting Ukraine at the moment, uh, always in the back of their mind must be this sense that uh, that will start to run out at some point. So, you know, they have to make hay while the sun shines. While they're getting this support from the West, they have to use it. Um, well, and they have to use it quickly. So, you know, I think there's the, the domestic political imperative, but there's also the strategic uh, imperative to use this Western support while it's still there. So if I could just kind of summarize that thought, if it would, it seems like Russia is trying to mobilize to hold that kind of line that you described, this, this artillery battle that you described when you first joined us today. Um, and then also simultaneously try and grip Europe as tightly as you can and influence operations there to kind of produce this, hopefully this culmination moment to one you're describing where around wintertime or just after winter, say February, that th this is kind of what they have left in the bag of tricks, right? That mm -hmm. this is the, what they're going to be trying to do over the course of the next several months. Yeah, I mean, the, the Russian combination of the Nord Stream attack and the mobilization is all about delay and seeking to carve off European publics from supporting Ukraine. Uh, we've talked about the Nord Stream. Mobilisation is about stemming um, the loss um, that the Russians are suffering in various parts of Ukraine, but also drawing out the war. You know, right from the very start, Putin has wanted to... Once he found out he couldn't do it in three days, you know, switch strategy to, OK, we'll play for time. Um, Russia's not moving anywhere. Um, we're always going to be here. If we can play for time, the Europeans will get sick of supporting Ukraine, and that is part of our theory of victory. So, you know, the Russians are in no rush, um, despite some of the, you know, more dire predictions about the future of Putin's regime. I don't think he perceives he's in any danger. I think he perceives that you know, uh, Russia's position relative to China and others might be a threat. Uh, but Putin only sees one way forward out of this, and this is winning in Ukraine. Thanks for Thanks that, so much. Uh, I just wanted to announce to the audience and to you, sir, that uh, uh, 38 minutes ago, um, CAS News Agency, 
and uh, Russia Today, the premier source of propaganda information, um, has reported that Vladimir Putin has formally recognized the annexation of Zaporizhia and Kherson Oblast. Yep, right. Okay. Interesting. Well, um, certainly, certainly not a surprise. Um, you know, and I think this really is a escalation in the war from Putin. Uh, his narrative from 9 May has been about liberating the Donbass. It's substantially more than that now. Um, you know, in the Russian mind now, if these four provinces are Russian, um, it changes where they can use conscripts. Um, you know, it extends the nuclear umbrella to that territory. Um, but it also, I guess, places, you know, operations in these four territories on a more defensive posture. I mean, they're just going to flood people in who can hold ground and do vehicle checkpoints and suppress um, resistance efforts and terrorise and rape and torture and, and murder, murder the local Ukrainians like they've been doing throughout this. So I guess that's my initial thoughts. Um, and the Ukrainians, this will just double their resolve. Like they're saying, this is not part of Russia. This is our land. We are going to take it back, and the sooner the better. Fair enough. All right, we've got Axel, who uh, has a, a few questions for you. Axel, go ahead. Sure. General Ryan, good morning. Good morning. Hi, Axel. Good to have you back. Um, on one of your previous visits and, uh, and our discussions, you had said that you would love to be a fly on the wall when General Zaluzhny and people uh, were discussing their battle plans and their strategies. Now, you've been to Kiev. Um, we've seen that you've obviously met uh, the president and others. Um, what was your impression of the operational command and the, um, the overall atmosphere amongst staff? Um, you know, I, I got a sense of quiet confidence. Certainly, you know, we spoke to the J5 from the headquarters there. I thought he was a very impressive individual, um, you know, with a really good grasp of the operational art. Um, he was probably a little bit frustrated when people started asking about how many tanks this, and it's like, uh, you know, ask the J4 that. But, um, you know, there was a very quiet confidence, but also a tremendous competence. I mean, the Ukrainians have proven throughout this war that they can outthink and outfight the Russians. And as long as they don't get drawn back into these grubby attritional fights that the Russians like to engage in, particularly now that they've mobilised a couple hundred thousand more troops, um, you know, they will continue to take back ground. Now, whether they're whether it can be over before the end of this year, I think that's highly doubtful. But, you know, 2023 could well be a year of decision in this war. When we then last spoke, um, and this was in discussion still, prior to the, for many people, rather surprising um, attack in the north, we discussed Kherson. Mm -hmm. You indicated that you had a couple of views which you didn't want to do, go uh, too deeply in at that point in time as to what Ukraine might be doing. Is there? Can you lift that veil a little bit today? No, I still think there's uh, a campaign plan to play out. I think that uh, uh, the Ukrainians might have one more surprise left in them before the winter. 
Um, and, you know, if you have a look at the ground, I think there's a few areas where that might occur. But, I, you know, my sense is they're probably still looking for where that might happen. You know, where are the opportunities for potentially one more uh, significant offensive before winter? And I don't have any evidence for this. It's just my, you know, experience and spidey sense here. Um, But I I would say the Ukrainians are just watching uh, Russian battlefield deployments at the moment, having a look at where they might be weak, where the logistics aren't working well, where it will be hard for them to reinforce quickly for for potentially another opportunity uh, counter-offensive before winter. Um, That could be in the east. It could be in the south. Um, I could imagine two or three different axes uh, along which you might launch such a counter-offensive. Uh, but I, you know, my sense is they've got an operational design for this year and into next year, uh, and they're still still playing that design both as a plan, but also um, maintaining the capacity to exploit opportunities where they arise. So you could say that, in, in layman's terms, that this is a, they are very fleet of foot which requires an astonishing amount of logistics behind that in order to keep that mobility up. Oh, well, yeah, if, if they are going to launch something, clearly this offensive in, in the northeast will have absorbed a huge, a huge amount of um, logistics support, um, a lot of um, uh, ammunition and a lot of fuel, you know, a lot of trucks, these kind of things. So... Um, you know, another offensive would require stockpiles of similar natures of supply. Um, have they done that? I don't know. If I knew it, I wouldn't say. <laughs> <laughs> the interesting thing is when um, my friend Yehuda and I were uh, observing this and he was guiding uh, people through here on space during those rather yeah, heady days and hours of the Kharkiv Oblast um, offensive, when Ukraine pushed to Balaklia and onwards to Izum, where there was so much momentum, where thousands of listeners and everybody was quite giddy also, it was still very clear that the Ukrainians had follow-up forces, they had uh, a lot of brigades in the rear, they were very concentrated, and it never seemed to get out of hand. There was no, um, there was no excessive movement. They were never too far out. There seems to be a lot of discipline. Is that what the impression you got when you spoke to people in Kiev? Oh, no, I think so. I mean, you're always... There's discipline, but you also want aggressive commanders that push as far as they can, and that's always going to happen. If you've got good aggressive commanders, that's going to happen, particularly is, you know, if you're operating in a mission command construct, people will um, seek to exploit opportunities um, uh, as quickly as they can without having to go up the chain. Sometimes that means they go beyond um, their orders. But, you know, I get the sense that they've probably been issued um, pretty uh, good uh, limits of exploitation, as we'd call them. Um, and they they do seem to be operating with great discipline. They don't appear to have been surprised or had people cut off in any Russian counterattacks um, no, I mean, this has been, I think, a very competently planned and executed offensive uh, and certainly well worth studying once all the details emerge at some point. I mean, clearly we've only seen a small proportion of what's happening here, 
But at some point, um, you know, when we see all the information, I think it'll be a very interesting campaign to study. My last question is just also then opening up to, to others, but how do you see the supply side going? How do you see the, the coalition of the willing contributing uh, speed? Obviously, the land lease is now kicking in. We, we can see that the United States of America, Britain, the others are supporting Ukraine meticulously, heavily, with a lot of, lot of support. But what do you think is missing yet? Or it, are they doing the right things? Are they providing the right kind of weapon systems? I think so. I mean, I think we are do, providing the right things. We're not providing the right quantities. Um, particularly, I think, you know, I think air defence at the moment is starting to see a more significant influx of air defence capabilities, and certainly in the short and medium range. Uh, probably long range is a, is a gap that needs to be filled, and the Ukrainians are very clear that they need short, medium and long range air and missile defence in an integrated system. Um, but it's also clear that the Ukrainians, with what they do have, have been very effective. I mean, um, you know, I, from a couple of sources, I've, you know, been told that the Ukrainian Air Force actually has shot down very few Russian aircraft in air-to-air -air, air -air engagements. They've almost all been through um, ground-based air defence systems. Now, there's a lot of air forces in the world that will not want to hear that. They, uh, they will be horrified. They will not want to study this because of the prevalence of ground-based air defence, but we're going to have to. Um, so the air defence is the priority one that the President and everyone down that we spoke to mentioned. Um, once again, on the quantity side of things, armoured vehicles, whether they're tanks, IFVs, APCs, um, they need more of them. I mean, you go through these things very quickly, particularly in offensive operations, like whether they're destroyed, whether they break down, whether they just wear out. I mean, tanks in particular aren't designed to drive for 100 kilometres at a time. Um, there's reasons you have tank transporters. So, you know, we need more. I think now's the time, particularly over winter, to start equipping them with Western tanks. And, you know, I think it's, it can either be an M1 or a Leopard fleet. You, we don't want to choose both. I think the, Le um, the M1 is the best tank in the world, and that's the one we should give them. Um, it's a very difficult tank to um, use and maintain. I know I had a brigade with them, um, but they are extraordinary uh, tanks. And I think if we gave them to the Ukrainians, they could use them very well. Um, and a third area where just quantity is required is artillery, long-range strike. Um, we've seen that being fixed in the last few days with the American latest package, you know, 18 more HIMARS over the next 6 to 24 months. Um, so that's not going to have an immediate impact, but it will certainly help. Um, so these are the areas where they are getting aid, uh, but more should be provided. And, and we visited the Polish Logistics Hub um, at a at a location in Poland, and it's probably only operating, you know, according to their briefs, at about 60% capacity. So there is capacity to receive and on ship into Ukraine additional assistance from the West. It's interesting that you highlighted that whilst it is a difficult tank, uh, given its sheer force and, and uh, capabilities, the M1 should be the one selected. But then again, there's lots of them available. Absolutely, there is. And they're just a, they're, they're a fa fabulous vehicle. So uh, back, you, back, you, back, sorry, just uh, back, back in about May, General Leslie Clark, out of nowhere, 
because I monitor the means there, said on American television, there's about 500 Abrams uh, we can cut away. And that, I'm sure that's not a number he just made up. Is that is that something that's been in the offing or for a while? Or can you share that? That sounds to be the right quantity they need. Um, you know, remember the Americans have several thousand of these sitting out in the desert um, in storage. Um and their fleet is going through an upgrade program. I think it's SEP3, which is the variant we're also going to get in Australia. Um, so there are tanks around. Um, they have them in storage in different locations around the world. The US Army has brigade sets, um, and that's what you really want to issue, right? You know, providing a dozen or two dozen is, is pointless. It's a liability without a capability. But you start providing brigade sets of the tanks with their Hercules recovery vehicles, bridges, engineer support vehicles, uh, the heavy tank transporters, the whole logistic, you know, first and second line logistic support. All of a sudden, you've got a pretty capable um, armoured and mechanised army that, you know, frankly, the Russians with their T-72s and T-55s and whatever other ancient armoured vehicles they're pulling out of stocks just will not have an answer for. Oh, perfect. Uh, we've got Constantine. Constantine is a, a Ukrainian-American living in the United States, and he was a, uh, a combat veteran from the Donbass from 2014. Um, he has a question for you. Go ahead, Constantine. Uh, hello, General. Uh, so my question here is um, related uh, uh, more to uh, uh, the, the illegal sham referenda that's going on uh, specifically in, in Zaporizhia. Uh, and uh, so, so my question is uh, like this: uh, Since like Russian forces, they did not even capture the uh, majority of uh, Zaporizhia land. They failed in doing that, and the city, and Zaporizhia is a big city, it, it, and the capital of, of Zaporizhia. Uh, how, like, how do you rate the fact that right now Putin says, okay, we acknowledge it part of the of the Russia, even though they did not even get close to the city of, uh, uh, to take it. I mean, it, it, does that mean something like he's desperate, or why would, like, he has no chances of doing that, or why is it he doing that? Mm. No, uh, this is really uh, what we call warfare. Um, this is Putin uh, engaging in quasi-legal uh, measures to illegally annex uh, parts of the world that, one, aren't his, and, two, he's going to have to defend at some point. I mean, um, I think this puts... This means he's in real trouble because when the Ukrainians take back the South, which I think um, they're going to do, um, what, does he, what does Putin do? He looks like a fool to his own people, um, and it puts him in a pretty difficult position um, about defending them. So, you know, this is, a, in some respects, a pretty dangerous step by Putin because it backs him into a corner um, when the Ukrainians, I think, inevitably launch further offensives to take back their, their territory in places like Kherson and Zaborizhia. Um, you know, this by Putin is, you know, a bold move, and I use that term cautiously, but all through this war he's tried, he's tried to have these bold moves, whether it's the rapid assault on Kiev or reorienting around Donbass um, or, you know, the weekends where they fired a whole lot of missiles to try and shock the Ukrainians and to, in at least Putin's mind, bring them to their senses that they can't 
you know, overcome the Russians. I think this is another one of those bold moves by Putin. Um, I, how it all ends up um, remains to be seen, but I, I don't see any prospect of the Russians taking all of Zaporizhia province anytime soon. I mean, I just that that's a front line um, that's been pretty static for some time now. Uh, thank you for answering it. Uh, and if you don't mind, I have one follow-up related to this. Um, sure. So, um, what uh, what will happen? I, and I I believe it will happen uh, when Ukraine does liberate, uh, for example, Zaporizhia, Kherson, and all all other things. And uh, if he said like this is Russia, uh, of course that's just his words. But still, like you said, he's he's like. He he making a fool of himself. Uh, what are he, what what his steps are going to be uh, next? Like how how he can try to maneuver or or just you know say well I was joking. Or what would what do you think he can uh, his reaction to that would be? Oh, I think what we'll see in these provinces is kind of what we've seen already in a lot of them, where they start Russifying um, education, the officials. Um, uh, bring in rubles uh, as the currency, you know, lots of sign changes, probably changing lots of names of roads and all these kind of things that um, will give them a sense of satisfaction, but which are very easily reversible when the Ukrainians take back. You know, I, I think, too, we may see a step up in resistance um, in these areas. Um, you know, I... I it's hard to see where this is going to end, and it's hard to see it ending well. Um, but, you know, he will have a sense of satisfaction. He'll have a domestic probably bump in um, popularity in Russia. Um, but he's got to hold it, and that's going to be very difficult. Can I jump in and just very quickly, Constantine, thank you very much for that. Um, General Ryan, should the United States, respective, should the coalition of the willing have a proportional or a disproportional response to Mr. Putin's stated annexation? Um, it's hard to judge what would be proportionate or disproportionate, but there's going to have to be some response. Um, and, you know, I would uh, sense that there's probably people in the United States and NATO who've been wargaming this outcome, you know, as branches and sequels as you do in, in plans, and they probably have a range of different response options, um, but they will be waiting for um, Putin to make this formal announcement. Now, the announcement, as far as I can see, has not yet been made. Um, it's only, I think it's 1.52 a.m. in the morning, uh, Friday morning in Moscow at the moment. Um, Reuters is, is saying there'll be a ceremony on Friday, so... You know, maybe sometime in the next 12 hours we will see something. Once that um, declaration is formally made by Putin, then I think we'll see announcements, you know, potentially from uh, section of NATO, from President of the United States and, and possibly, you know, from Britain and other political leaders about this. This is ultimately a political act. There'll have to be a political response. Ursula von der Leyen, perhaps from the EU, but I will tell you that TASS and Russia today have, for strangely, I, I would like to add, have reported uh, that that Putin has declared uh, part of Russia's Zaporizhia and Kherson. In the, in the announcement, it didn't say Luhansk, Kharkiv, or uh, Donetsk. So that's 
interesting to me because I don't understand it. Any any thoughts on that? Um, yeah, no, I, I haven't seen that. Um, but you know, um, I we'll we'll see how it plays my, out. I'll send it to you. It's it's very interesting because it's such a strange announcement just to say those two oblasts. I mm. suspect that they're the oblasts they might feel more more confident in in terms of you know their position. I don't know, but it's a weird announcement. It's from Russia today, as we know. That's a, a mouthpiece, right? They yep. say breaking. Putin recognizes the independence of Zaporizhia and Kherson oblast, and that's. Uh, from about an hour and 10 minutes ago now. Yeah. Very strange. Yeah. No, I can't see it being reported anywhere else, and it's the middle of the night in Russia, so they might right. be just getting... They may have got a, um, a press release from the Kremlin um, that they've released okay. a little bit early, but I, I can't see anything online, including his official site, um, which I would expect to see some kind of declaration on. So, you know, I think this will be part of what we're going to see in this... Um, ridiculous charade in Red Square at the moment um, where they've set up this uh, school fate type arrangement for this announcement. Uh, So that'll be sometime today. Fair enough. Yeah, no worries. But if you could look in the nest, I just posted it. Can you see the nest from where you're at? Okay. So it's just a strange announcement. The reason why that strikes me as odd is if he was to do all uh, five that he thinks are his, but he did two. So it's just weird to me. Anyway, food for thought. Sir, as a pleasure, I have to respond to the warden as we've had discussions in the past, and I have to jump off. So I'm going to leave you in Axel's capable hands and uh, no our problem. great listeners. Right. Uh, General Ryan, would you allow me to go to um, our French, Italian, then Uruguayan, and Canadian bunch of people? Absolutely. Let's do it. We'll start with, if you have a few minutes. Yes. No, I've got about another ben, 20 minutes. Yes. Oh, that's fantastic. Ben, please, shoot. Um, thank you. Good morning, General. Good morning. Uh, I've got a quick recommendation for you. A wonderful book published uh, in January. It's called War Transformed. It's a fantastic book. I really recommend it to you and to all our listeners. Uh, and in this, the author, I can't remember his name, says um, that... Sorry, what's the name of the book? Uh, War Transformed. Transformed. Yeah, I know the author very well. His name's Mick Ryan. Oh, yeah. His name's Mick Ryan. Oh, Mick Ryan. Oh, good fellow. I love him. <laughs> um, um, the well, you're saying in this book that um, so war is being transformed and that we're reaching a period when uh, brain is uh, winning over brunt. And I wanted to know if uh, what you've been seeing over the past six months confirms uh, what you're seeing in this book. And also, um, if you're seeing a sort of Ukrainian way of war, or if the way the Ukrainians are fighting is more of a degraded version of the, the NATO because they don't have uh, enough airplanes or something like that. Thank you. Yeah, I, I think certainly the Ukrainians have outthought the Russians all the way through this war, but I mean, they've still had to have a very large military to do that at the same time. So whilst having an intellectual edge over your adversary is vital, you still need all the other elements of a military capability, whether it's massed forces on the ground or the the ability to generate mass influence strategically, politically, you know, in an information warfare sense. Um, you know, you need those as well. So you need the physical and, and the 
and the informational to win. But most importantly, you need this capacity to outthink and then outlead your adversary. And I think the Ukrainians have also been better leaders from top to bottom in this war. I mean, the centrality of leadership has really been reinforced in this war. Sorry, the centrality of good leadership, um, whether it's from the president or from Zeluzhny or his subordinate commanders who've clearly had a, a far more decentralised command and control method than the Russians. Um, you know, they've outthought, outled and outthought the Russians all the way through this. Doesn't mean there haven't been reverses. I mean, war is like that. It's unpredictable. You never know the full situation before you commit yourself to acting. But by and large, I think the Ukrainians have fought uh, in a way that reflects NATO doctrine and ways of thinking, but also, I think, reflects the best of um, operational art, which, you know, emerged out of Russia. So I think there's large parts of NATO doctrine on what they've done. I think there's large parts of Western training methodologies that incorporate uh, professional non-commissioned officers, although they're not quite there yet, as some people have have said. Um, but they really, I think, have a good cadre of leaders um, that have done a superb job and I think we'll, we'll all be studying for some time. When you met the, those leaders, or some of them, um, in Kiev, what was the attitude that they generally had. You said earlier, calm demeanor, both disciplined but aggressive. Is there something which is very typical for them as a group or is are they already quite comparable to what Ben has highlighted as well? NATO generals or NATO colonels, majors? Um, no, I, you know, I think my sample size was pretty small, so it would be very difficult to generalize. And, you know, as my sample size for French-German um, officers, I've come across as well. Um, but the ones I did see I, I was impressed with, um, that could be just because they chose the impressive ones to interact with us. But I think uh, their performance on the battlefield is indicative of a pretty professional and competent planning and leadership approach in the Ukrainian military. Uh, it's not perfect. No military is. We should always remember that. But you've just got to be better than the enemy. And pretty much throughout this war, the Ukrainians have achieved that. Yeah, I get that. It's an impression which we share. Um, now, I'd like to move to a friend of ours, uh, an Italian in the Silicon Valley, Luca. Uh Thank you, Axel. Uh, General, thank you very much. It's always great to hear you, um, you know, uh, hear you uh, talking here in the space. Um, so I like to try to expose a narrative here and let me know what you think. Uh, um, and then also, like, what do you think the potential, uh, you know, uh, strategic reaction for, for this uh, narrative, if true, would be. So it goes like this, like, I think by now Putin knows that the war is lost. So he needs to escalate uh, because that's just what it does. So, hey, let me show you. I blow up my own pipeline. That looks like an escalation. I annex a bunch of territories. Um, sure, I conscript people. That's not working out very well, but, like, still, you know, look, the hordes are coming in, and uh, I can really see it on Twitter, the explosion of, like, a campaign about, hey, we're going to nuke, uh, you know, Ukraine, and 
and don't do anything otherwise we nuke the world like so we are scared about that so now the thing is like it's kind of like you cannot just talk about escalation he needs to do some ex escalation uh practically to uh, maybe justify you know the unthinkable which would be the use of uh, uh, nukes right so like maybe blowing up the pipeline is part of like the kind of like madman theory. You're kind of crazy if you're blowing up your own pipeline. Why would you do this ecological disaster and all of that? And then so I'm mad. And when I tell you that I'm going to nuke everybody, I will do it. So now you guys are scared. Okay. So that's the narrative. What do you think about it? And if that's the, the case, that it's kind of like, you know, potentially what's happening here, what should be our response? Um. I don't disagree with the thrust of what you've said, um, but I think we need to be careful in assuming that Putin thinks he's lost. Um, I don't know that he thinks that. Um, you know, my sense is that he sees himself in an existential fight for Russia, uh, that, um, you know, the NATO expansion, the EU expansion, over the last three decades, and, you know, he's been very open about this. There's no mystery. He sees this and the collapse of the Soviet Union as the greatest geopolitical tragedy of the 20th century. Um, so he, I think, doesn't believe Russia's lost, but I do think he believes he's in, is in an existential fight. And when you have that mindset, it justifies all kinds of repulsive and brutal behaviours from destroying Ukrainian cities to you know, the subjugation, torture, rape and murder of, of their citizens. Um, so I think, you know, we should be very careful in about assuming Putin thinks he's lost. I think it's more that he sees himself as in an existential fight for the future of the Russian people and the Russian culture. And I think then that, in his mind, justifies all kinds of things, uh, potentially including... Uh, the use of nuclear weapons at some point to ensure that there is a Russia in the future. That's a very good point. If you allow me, I'd move to Uruguay in this regard, or someone who has a favor, has a little knack for aircraft. This is an amazing Latin. tour of the world we're going on today. Yes, exactly. And we're going back to the Southern Hemisphere. That's also not bad. Latin. Thanks, Axel, and um, great, great to listen to you, uh, General. Always interesting. Uh, actually, I've always, I've always had a soft spot for Australia because my parents almost took us to Australia instead of Canada, so I would have had a different accent. You would have, yes, but very much. My, <laughs> very much so. Uh, my, my question, sir, is about we've we've spent a lot of time on this space, and there's been a lot of analysis generally about the quality of some of these um, these forces that are being mobilized in the last week or so. Mm. And uh, I think that speaks for itself, uh, the general opinion on that. But I want to turn to sort of the other side of the Russian military spectrum of the forces in Ukraine. Um, what can you share with us? Any insights on the sharper end of the Russian forces that are still in, in Russia? Are the, from what you've seen when you're during your visit there, are the Ukrainians still worried about that? Is there significant, what, what can you tell us about that end of the spectrum? You know, I, I... I don't think there's a lot of um, a lot of their high-end capability left. Um, you know, the Russians, I think, depending on the estimates you see, and there was a, a document leaked by the Russian finance ministry a couple of weeks ago um, 
that indicated around 48,000 have been killed in Ukraine, um, which means, you know, it's probably that number at least again, probably double that wounded. Um, the Russian army before this was 350,000, so they've lost 100 to 150,000 soldiers in this war. That has that will have ripped the guts out of the Russian army. Um, it is no longer the profession, the force that it was eight months ago. Um, Mobilisation, I think, wasn't something they wanted to do. It's something that was essential to actually have a Russian army in six months. So, you know, that will have an impact of no matter how good the best units were, they will have been stripped out of officers, they will have been attrited on the battlefield and a whole range of things. So when it comes to first-line units, um, there's not too many left in Russia. They may have kept a few in reserve for other contingencies, but, boy, there there isn't a lot left there now. It is going to take them some time to regenerate the capacity for large-scale offensive operations. This mobilised force is really going to be a defensive capability uh, for at least at least this year and probably into next year. That's great. Thank you, sir. All righty. Let's stay in Canada for a little while. Leonard. Uh, thank you, Axel. And uh, thank you as well, General Ryan. It is awfully generous of you and good to uh, share the time that you have with this space and specifically the, the great insights that uh, that come out of your recent trip to Ukraine. Uh, but I have uh, a question on on two points you raised for you. Sure. And that the first is with reference to the element of surprise, which uh, you discussed briefly, and then the second relates to the assessment uh, in terms of potential longevity we may be looking at uh, as far as this war. But uh, on on the first point, uh, you may recall the last time you were on, there was a little bit of lighthearted banter about uh, how. Uh, uh, a certain Western Canadian hockey team had uh, had employed the element of surprise and and uh, speed and firepower on the Russian army teams, but uh, it seems that the Ukraine has uh, uh, certainly the Ukrainian army has has really uh, owned some of those uh, aspects in terms of the element of surprise, uh, the element of speed. And uh, perhaps even the the aspect of firepower, given the backup that uh, that seems to be flowing now in into into Ukraine continuously from the west, and I just wondered what your assessment might be in terms of uh, what what you've seen just currently of the Ukraine army. Uh, it it seemed that at least in the Kharkiv offensive a couple of weeks ago, they they truly did succeed in the element of surprise and speed and really just uh, really uh, dazzled the the russian defenders now we we see things unfolding towards limon currently and i'm just wondering if you have an assessment in mind as to uh, firstly how important that aspect of surprise was and uh, further how uh, possible it is that the Ukraine is, will it be able to continue surprising the Russians? And it seems almost uh, 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 counter logical that in a battlefront that has been there for months, there, this element of surprise seems to keep cropping up. And 
I just wondered what you might point or how you may analyze that in terms of is it uh, Russian, uh, like total disruption in command structure, uh, chaos at the command level, uh, just or being too diversely spread over too large a front? Uh, I, there's all kinds of things that could play into it. And I just wondered, sir, what your professional assessment of that might be. And thank you again for, for all your insight. Thanks. Uh, no worries. Great question. Thank you. Um, you know, surprise is one of those enduring elements of warfare. Um, it's never going to go away, no matter how sophisticated we think we might be. I mean, if you have a look at Afghanistan, probably the most densely surveilled piece of the earth in the history of warfare, and we constantly got surprised. So, you know, surprise is just one of those things that, you know, the art of command prizes for good reason. And the reason surprise is prized um, is firstly... It allows you to generate shock in your adversary, and shock is a very important thing to have because what it does, it breaks down the cohesion of forces, it slows down decision-making, it paralyzes some decision-makers and commanders, and it is in that period of shock in the wake of a surprise where you can uh, do the most killing of your adversary, take the most territory, and, you know, generate the most profound psychological impact, not just on the enemy in the battlefield that you're killing, but also on their people back home. So it's very important. Um, it's, it's prized in both the Eastern and Western philosophies of war for that, for that purpose. Um, why have the Ukrainians been able to surprise the Russians uh, there's a couple of reasons. Firstly, this is a very long fever. I mean, the forward edge of the battle area extends, you know, well over a thousand kilometres, much longer than that by some reports. And this is not a large Russian force that's on their side of it. I mean, they went in with about 150, 160,000 troops. So battlefield density is small. And when you take into account, um, you know, high concentrations of Russian troops in areas of the Donbass in Kherson, it means some areas just are going to have a very low density of troops. Now, if you add on to that, you know, our Ukrainian interlocutors explained that the Russian tactical reconnaissance is very poor. Now, that's important because in, you know, in the battle space, you always seek to engage in a recon battle with the enemy. You are trying to get information on their dispositions while denying them information on yours. The Russians have not been doing that well, and they certainly weren't doing it well up in the north. Another reason they were surprised is, um, you know, our Ukrainian interlocutors mentioned that the Ukrainians are good, so the Russians are good at collecting information, but they're poor at actioning things based on that intelligence. There's a gap there between intelligence collection and then action that emerges from it. And I think the final reason in this particular incident is um, the Russian forces in that area were very low quality. They weren't real army. There was Rosgardia and, and a few other forces. These are not troops that understand things like recon battle. They don't understand defence in depth. They don't understand mobile and situational reserves, rever you know, rehearsing counterattack and counterpenetration uh, activities, um, logistics and all that kind of thing. These are troops that are put there to terrorise, torture and murder locals. 
So when they come up against a real army, they, they, they're in big trouble, and they were. So for all these reasons, the Ukrainians were able to um, surprise the Russians in that area, pen, you know, break in, penetrate, and then conduct an exploitation over, over multiple days. Uh, you know, there was an opportunity there as well. You know, they, their sequencing in this operation was all about the south first and then the northeast, and it worked. Um, and I wouldn't be surprised if they're looking around for another opportunity to surprise the Russians before winter just to pile on, not just the destruction of as much of the Russian army as possible, which I think is exactly what we need. We need to destroy as much military capacity of the Russians as we can in this war. Um, but they need to add to the psychological shock of the Russian people and to say to them, hey, listen, we're not fighting you, but you need to know you can't win. Um, so for all those reasons, you know, shock's important, and I, I think the Ukrainians probably have a few more surprises up their sleeve. Thank you, Leonard. Uh, that would coincide with the complete and utter destruction and degradation of the Russian economy, which is continuously happening, and actually um, it's on a geometrical scale what's happening at the moment. So what you're saying is they have another ace up their sleeves. They may actually draw it before the end of the year. Russian economy tanks, that makes it hardly sustainable for Putin to continue in that format, or at least be much weaker. Much weaker. Yeah, I mean, I think battlefield uh, challenges are different to, you know, the, the issues in the economy. Clearly, the Russian economy is in trouble. Um, it, there's no way that it couldn't be. But uh, they've also demonstrated resilience before in their history, um, they've demonstrated the capacity to make certain parts of their society suffer so that the Russian military can uh, remain uh, viable. I, I expect that they'll be able to do that for a little while to come. Um, so, you know, uh, they could lose on the battle space while still have a, a viable economy. They're, they're two kind of separate issues, I think. Um, let us go to another American soldier formerly, Raver. Hey, good evening, Axel. Good evening, sir. Hello. So, as we, um, so Putin had to go on national TV and try to explain away the mess-ups with the mobilization. Uh, given that there's at least that level of responsiveness to the public, what do you think that pretends for his actual willingness to risk them in nuclear warfare? Um, I think there's two bits to this. I mean, the Russian... Uh, people's opinion in this war is held up uh, largely in support of it. Uh, you, know, you can question polls and methodologies, but generally around 80% of the Russian people have supported what's going on. Um, now, does that extend to uh, nuclear war? Well, firstly, they're not going to get a choice, I don't think. Uh, they'll find, about it in, find out about it in retrospect. But, you know, Putin has been able to justify a lot by using the mantra of Russia under attack, defending the motherland. And, you know, once Zaporizhia, Kherson, Donetsk and Luhansk become part of the Russian motherland, at least in, in the Russian perspective, you know, I think um, he will use that narrative again about NATO attacking Russia, Russia defending the motherland. And I, I can't see any reason why his support won't hold up. And that could extend to the use of nuclear weapons. We shouldn't take them off the table. I think it's low probability, but it's not zero probability, unfortunately. Yep. 
I agree with that. Uh, Constantine. Uh, yes. Uh, hello, one, hello once again, General. Uh, hello. I have a question related. How, how do you rate... Uh, how do you rate uh, Belarus as a danger to in this war to Ukraine right now? Oh, sorry, can you just repeat that? You cut out there. Yeah. Uh, how do you rate Belarus as, as a threat to Ukraine at this moment? Um, not highly. Uh, you can't take your eye off it, clearly. But I think if Belarus was going to um, engage as a belligerent, it probably would have done so before now. It probably would have done so in the first couple of months when things looked at their most dire for Ukraine. I think they've now looked at Ukraine and gone, oh, wow, we have a neighbour that is pretty good at this. Um, let's not uh, let's not do anything to upset them too much by engaging in combat uh, with them. So I think it's very, very unlikely that we'll see uh, Belarus uh, enter as a belligerent. I think, you know, they'll still be coerced into providing bases for Russian uh, forces, but I can't see them engaging in this war as a belligerent. I mean, I just... Lukashenko has enough problems on his hands. He doesn't need a war as well, which he's probably going to lose on top of it. Uh, thank you. And uh, follow, uh, how would you rate the Belarusian army itself, like its combat readiness? Um, I, I don't know enough about them to to an expressive view, unfortunately. Got it. Thank you for your answers. No worries. Have to head off, mate. So um, yeah, I'm about. Uh, I've got another appointment very shortly, so I need to move off. But um, thank you very much for having me again. It has been a privilege and a pleasure. Thank you very much for taking the time. As there are more events coming, I shall hope that we shall see you return. Yes, I'm sure you will. <laughs> okay, thanks everyone. It's great to uh, talk.